The Sydney family is mourning the loss of their son, Trooper Jason Brown, killed in Afghanistan. His death brings the number of soldiers who have died since the war began to 18. Trooper Brown, the son of a Vietnam vet, died in a gun battle with insurgents. He was 29. Trooper Jason Brown was on his first tour of duty to Afghanistan. He died serving the country he loved. It is with deep regret that I inform you this morning that an Australian soldier serving with the Special Operations Task Group in Afghanistan has been killed in action overnight. Trooper Brown and his unit were patrolling last night in northern Kandahar when they encountered a group of insurgents. In the gun battle that followed, he was shot several times. Unfortunately, despite the best efforts of his mates and the coalition medical staff, the soldier died from his wounds. The 29-year-old was born in Sydney and dreamed of a military career. His parents and sister were told of his death this morning. We cannot uh, ease their grief any more than we can repay his sacrifice. Defence Minister John Faulkner said the past few months had been a time of increasing danger for Australian troops in the war zone. 18 Australian soldiers have uh, now tragically been killed in action in Afghanistan. Seven of those died this year. The nation, I believe, will mourn the loss of Trooper Brown today. I convey our sympathy and condolences to his friends and family. But both leaders agree we must stay the course. Because our nation cannot see Afghanistan once again become a safe haven for terrorists. The opposition continues to fully and strongly support the Australian commitment to Afghanistan. Trooper Brown was a highly decorated career soldier. He'd also served in East Timor. The battle in which he died is still being fought. Lexi Hamilton-Smith, 10 News. Our troops have been under increasing pressure from the Taliban. Rocket attacks on our base are now up to five a week. Lisa Rolls reports from Kandahar. And Lisa, news of Trooper Brown's death has come as a crushing blow. It's devastating news for the troops here in Afghanistan. They've seen far too much death already this year. They've had two of the deadliest months of the year so far. And they had been hoping that, given that it is Ramadan here at the moment, the fighting would have eased. Unfortunately, it doesn't appear to have happened that way. Uh, they woke this morning to this news filtering through through the chain of command. Everyone here in absolute shock. Yet again, they're now facing another ramp ceremony to send another one of their own home. It is just heartbreaking because this soldier, like so many that are here, are just so young. He was, he was 29, he wasn't married, he hadn't had the chance yet to get married, to have children, to live, to live that life that all of us dream of. Uh, you know, for the soldiers here, it's a real reality check that they are in a war zone and it is life and death. to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest for this week's podcast. Uh, joining me is Andrew White, and he is a recently retired Australian SAS trooper. Uh, he's had an interesting uh, military career as he served in the British Army and retired in the Australian Army. So um, we'll, we'll jump into that. Uh, Andrew, how's it going? Hey, John. How are you, mate? Good, man. Um, Thanks for having me on. Yeah, happy to have you here. Um, you know, I'm always interested to speak to uh, people who served in the UK or Australia, you know, uh, allied nations and all that. So 
Um, before we start, I, I have to ask you though, being that you're from the UK, but you've lived in Australia for you know a yeah. while now. Do you have an Australian accent or do you have a British accent? <laughs> well, I met uh, Prince Harry um, a few years back, and he told me my accent was fucked up. Um, oh, did I said, he? Yeah, your ginger. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's definitely got an Aussie twang on it. Um, but I'm from the southwest, and that kind of trumps every other accent mm. uh, out. So uh, the southwest of England sound like farmers. So I think that's kind of prevalent. Um, the accent, yeah, it kind of beats everything. Yeah, it's interesting because a couple of years ago, I wasn't able to tell the difference between Australian and British accents. Now I can. Um, <laughs> it's but, crazy. Australia is so vast and pretty much uh, everyone sounds the same. There's a, you know, if you're from Sydney or, you know, in the city, you sound a little bit more proper. But, mm. uh, and, you know, the further you go out bush, uh, you sound more what Australians refer to as ocker. Um, but you go to the UK and it's so small. Um, you know, the next town over has got a different accent. Yeah. So, uh yeah, it's, uh, it's it's quite strange when you look at it like that. So is the accent different from uh, Western Australia to, like, Sydney, or is it about the same? Uh, no, not really, mate. Um, but in, in the UK, that's what I'm saying. You know, from one town to the next is different. Here, the whole country is pretty much uh, similar. I see. I see. Okay, so so let's start with, like, you know, where you're from in the UK and, and sort of what, what your life was like growing up there. Yeah, no worries, mate. So, yeah, like I said, I was from the, the southwest of England, a little seaside town called Western Supermare. Um, it's probably about uh, two hours south, uh, west, southwest of um, London. Um, yeah, I had uh, five brothers growing up, um, just a working class family, um, great upbringing. I, you know, I can't complain. Um, didn't particularly uh, do very well in school. Uh, only real recently found I was uh, undiagnosed ADHD up until recently, uh, mm. as I think a lot of special forces blokes are, or soldiers anyway. <laughs> um, I left school at 15 without any grades and joined the army as a bet, really. Um, I was in math class and one of the guys said, oh, you wouldn't last three months. Uh, so, yeah, nearly 30 years later, here I am. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, okay, so kind of a normal childhood. Uh, did you... Were you always thinking about the army, or did that just kind of happen? Uh, so I was an army cadet from quite young, um, probably about 13. We didn't do a lot, but it was just something to do on a, I think it was a Thursday night. Um, so it was always kind of, uh, you know, imprinted from that young age. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when I was going through the, the last few years in school, the Gulf War was on, um, you know, or just finished, shall I say. And Andy McNabb, uh, books had come out, so I was you know, reading them and it definitely, uh, yeah, piqued my interest. Um, so knowing that I wasn't very good in school was coming out with no, uh, qualifications. It was, it was a foregone conclusion. Really. I was going to join, uh, the British infantry. Um, yeah. So I joined at 16. Okay. So at 16, <clears throat> do your parents have to like sign off on it or they do mate. Yeah. My mum cried all the way. Um, my dad, <laughs> Uh, you know, he, he was he was away. He was, he was a truck driver, so he was always away. Um, and you know, he said, "Whatever you don't join the foot sloggers." I didn't have a clue what he meant. Um, but I turned up at the recruiting centre, um, and I wanted to join the Signals because um, they rode bikes back in the day um, as mm. dispatch riders, um, the Royal Signals. Um, but the guy twisted my arm and made me, uh, you know, kind of sign uh, sign up for the light infantry. Um, 
didn't have a clue what it was really um and i went home and dad's like you bloody idiots the foot sloggers um so yeah dad's uh, <laughs> advice didn't really pay off <laughs> um okay so all right so you're 16 you're in the army um you kind of end up where you didn't expect to uh, i would imagine it's it's similar to how it is here in the, in, in the uk where like <clears throat> Uh, recruiters aren't exactly up front with you and they kind of mislead you in, in many ways. <laughs> yeah, so the recruiter is a guy called Nick. Um, and funny enough, he was a family friend. Um, but I wasn't aware of that at the time. Uh, but yeah, he knew me dad um, through a mutual friend. But uh, yeah, like you say, they, they got quotas to, to uh, meet. So yeah, he was, he saw, uh, you know, me walk in as a, a recruiter's wet dream, to be honest. And yeah, yeah I was off to, uh, what you'd call boot camp, I suppose. We call um, phase one training in Winchester. Mm, okay. And um, and <clears throat> how long was was that whole uh, sort of phase one for you? <clears throat> so the phase one is three months and the phase two uh, is three months, roughly. Um, so I was one of the first, or sorry, the first intake. They cut away uh, junior soldiers and they just had one intake. So it was, you know, from 16 years old to I think the oldest guy in our intake was 36 um, and we're just chucked in together and kind of get on with it. So it was three months in Winchester, which is basic, you know, uh, marching, shooting, fitness, uh, military skills at a ba- very basic level. Uh, and once you pass that, you go to, uh, well, now you go to a place called Catterick in the northeast uh, of uh, the UK. But we went to Ouston, which is a little bit further uh, north, um, a little bit colder and probably a little bit harder in the training as well. Um, I'm joking. But um <laughs> Yeah, it was that was three months, and that was uh, like infantry training to get you ready to go to an infantry battalion, um, which I did in the early 1994. I think it was February. Uh, I ended up uh, going to the first battalion, the light infantry, based in Colchester. Mm, okay. Okay. So, uh, was your first uh, deployment was that in Northern Ireland? It was, mate. Yeah. Okay, so there, you know, there was a long history of, of the conflict there. Um, yeah, I mean, for, I don't know the ex- the full extent of it, but I I've read books from like the seventies where they were talking about it. Um, so, uh, what was that like? You know, how were things in Northern Ireland in those days in, ter- in terms of the conflict? Yeah, I mean, the, the the issues go back, you know, years, years and years and years. And, you know, the British uh, 100% oppressed the Irish. And, you know, they were exp- at the height of the famine. And, oh, you know, I can't remember what date it was, but, you know, the late 1800s or whatever. Um, they were exporting more potatoes to the UK uh, or England, um, you know, and all their people were dying. So mm-hmm. they were definitely, uh, uh, you know, treated like shit. But, uh, you know, there's nothing of significance happened really until the Easter uprising, I think in, uh, in Dublin um, with Michael Collins. And that was uh, around the, I can't remember the exact date, so please excuse me, but it's around the uh, world war um, one kind of date or just after. Um, but then the recent troubles happened with uh, the Protestants were, mm-hmm. you know, kicking the shit out of the Catholics. Um, so we, the British army initially in the late sixties was sent over to Ireland to look after the Catholics or just to protect the Catholics and keep, keep them apart. Um, so that, that relationship was really good initially. Um, and then, uh, some of the Catholics started up rising against the Protestants. So the British army kind of put them in their place as well. And it was like, hang on a minute, you're here to protect us. Now you're doing this. So we become that uh, piggy in the middle, if you will. Um, and it was really bad for, you know, a number of years. So come, uh, my, 
the first deployment that I should have gone on, had I been old enough, was 1994 to Fermanagh. Um, the battalion deployed. I wasn't allowed. I was sent to um, the recruiting team because I was still 16. Um, by the time I got back and, you know, whatnot, spent a bit of time in uh, battalion. I deployed in 1996. Um, so, yeah, I went to Besbrook Mill. So by that stage, uh, you know, Sinn Féin had already decided we're going to push the political aspect rather than, you know, we're going to go by the uh, pen rather than, than, the, than the gun. So it was all mostly political. There was still stuff happening underneath, uh, you know, the table. Um, but uh, it was largely the criminal element. Um, we spent four months uh, in Besbrook Mill, which is in South Armagh, um, essentially just protecting the town uh, of Besbrook. And we're up in the hills in the, what they call the Romeo Towers, um, just watching all the known terrorists and watching them move around. And, uh, you know, we, we, we could see pretty much into their front rooms um, with the uh, equipment we had. And we just essentially passed them on to other towers. So we just watched them and followed them everywhere they went um, just to stop them uh, being able to do uh, hits. Uh, we got cut short. Our tour got cut short by about a month, six weeks. Uh, and uh, I ended up going back to uh, Western Superman. I was sat watching TV one morning and the vehicle checkpoint uh, that I'd been, uh, you know, a part of or helped run for the last four whatever months, um, there was a young guy called uh, Stephen Restrick, Lance Bombardier, um, who just been shot um, by the uh, by a sniper from uh, the IRA. Mm. Um, so he was the last guy in them troubles, I suppose, um, to be killed uh, by the IRA. Oh, I know wow. there's been more since, um, but uh, it's kind of. Now they're, they're all criminals, they're drug runners, and they're just fucking scumbags, mate. If I'm honest, um, yeah, it's not political anymore. It's just, it's just crime. Mm, I see. So uh, initially, when the the British Army went in, we're protecting the Catholics, and then the the yeah. Uh, so then, did it turn into a situation where the Catholics and the Protestants are fighting each other and the British Army? Hundred percent, mate. Mm. Uh, and there was so many splinter groups and different uh, units. Uh, of the paramilitaries on both sides of the, uh, you know, the Protestants and the Catholics. Um, it was hard to tell who was who. And then they'd have infight and they'd kill each other. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty, it was a pretty crazy situation. But uh, again, like I say, I caught the tail end of it. Mm. Um, it was, it was bad. Um, you know, seventies and eighties. Um, that was the, the, probably the worst time um, for the guys. And, you know, by the time I got to battalion, all these guys had spent, you know, they, they'd cut their teeth in the army um, in Northern Ireland um, fighting, you know, terrorism. Uh, so yeah, it, it wasn't new to, uh, the UK. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, you end up leaving from there. Uh, at any point were you thinking about British special forces uh, up to this, uh, early in your career or no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Special Forces has always been in the back of my mind. I've always, always had that healthy um, doubt, would I pass, you know, and it kind of put me off for a little bit. Um, but at this stage, you know, 1996, I was way too young. There was, there was a lot mm. of uh, water under the bridge for me um, to, you know, to go uh, in the British Army before I even considered it. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, is I think personally, um, anyone who joins the infantry, you're showing a, uh, you know, a, a character trait you want to go and fight. So why wouldn't you want to fight in the best units that your, you know, your army has? Mm, okay. 
All right, so, um, you know, you're, you're a pretty young guy. You were in Northern Ireland. Um, you left, and you're, you're doing different things in the Army training and, and so forth. Uh, and then you were uh, involved with the invasion of Iraq. Um, can you talk about that and what that experience <clears throat> yeah, was yeah, like? Yeah, yeah, of course I can. So there was a lot of stuff, you know, to happen prior to that. Um, from Besbrook, uh, you know, we went back to Colchester. Um, and from there, we posted to Cyprus for a few years. Um, and then we ended up uh, going from Cyprus to Edinburgh. Mm. Uh, I deployed from there to Sierra Leone, uh, Kenya. Um, and then the battalion was, uh, change, we changed roles from light role infantry to uh, armored infantry. And with that, we moved to Germany. Uh, there was a massive uh, base, bases in Germany. I think most of them are cha- uh, closed down now, but um, based in Germany. So <coughs> we uh, moved to Germany. I did a uh, gunnery uh, instructor's course, which was 11 weeks, uh, just basically teaching the turret systems. Uh, and help teach on the battalion conversion. It was quite well timed for the battalion because we literally just finished the conversion and Iraq was kicking off. Uh, and obviously Bush and Blair were quite uh, insistent on killing Saddam. So um, because we were the freshest uh, cab off the rank, if you will, um, uh, we we got the task to uh, join Seventh uh, Armored Brigade of Desert Rats um, that were named for kicking Rommel's ass in World War Two. Uh, in, in Iraq during the invasion, so we deployed to Kuwait. Okay, so you were in Kuwait uh, right before the invasion? Yeah, so we were there for probably about, must have been about a month. Mm. Um, yeah, in and out of CBRN gear, um, you know, a few missiles would hit a couple of Ks away from where we were based, and it would be gas, 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 messing on messing, so we'd be sat there, uh, you know, in CBRN gear waiting for the all-clear. Um, and we came under the uh, U.S. control uh, of the Marine Expeditionary Force mm. and uh, Tommy Franks. Okay, so basically you were assigned uh, under his command and, you know, whatever objectives he gave, that's what you guys were going to complete? Yeah, pretty much, mate. Uh, Our division, um, we came under, like I say, the Marine Expeditionary Force and essentially uh, our task was to uh, take take the south while uh, the U.S. pushed forward and, uh, you know, went headed straight for Baghdad. So... Uh, so the British in Iraq were primarily in the South uh, for most of the yeah. conflict. Um, yeah. So did you guys, like, was your objective to go and take, like, Basra or? Yeah, so <clears throat> we were we were uh, quite a unique uh, battle group, to be honest. We had two squadrons of uh, Challenger 2 tanks with the 2nd Raw Tank Regiment and two companies of armored infantry uh, warriors. So the warrior is, um, I suppose the equivalent uh, of the M2 Bradley. Um, it's probably n- not as good in some aspects. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, we were quite... <coughs> sorry, mate. We were quite flexible uh, in, in regards to where we would push and, you know, the the weapon we, we had. So we were the Brigade Reserve. Um, our task was essentially just to, you know, push up behind and get, get used for whatever. Um so initially we went to uh, a little town to the west of Azu, uh, sorry, Basra called Azubaya, um, and we did a uh, uh, a, a tank uh, and dismounted infantry assault on the town, um, and that was probably the first three days, four days of crossing uh, the line of departure from Kuwait um, on the 19th of, uh, I think it was March, yeah, 19th of March, sorry, Feb, Feb. Okay. 
Um, okay, now how long was this deployment uh, for the invasion? Uh, so it, we, we, it was open-ended. We didn't know how long we want to be there, um, but we eventually we, we stayed for four months. Um, but uh, we knew we were coming straight back. So we, we'd already been told um, we were, you know, turning around and coming back with the battalion on the third trip. So this was tele- what we called optelic. Um, so the guys that come and relieve us did two. We were coming back for three. So we already knew we were, uh, you know, turning around. And how long was it that you were home before you had to then redeploy? It wasn't long, mate. Um, but it was an, it was enough time for uh, the the battalion to send me on a career course um, in the UK. So mm. three month career course. It, yeah, it was probably um, I'd say eight months, something like that. Okay. Okay. All right. So um, so in that that initial push and. Were you guys seeing a lot of combat or or not yet? No, so I mean there was there was there was definitely uh, combat to be had um, in Azubair. Uh, like I say, we did a uh, we we um, we're going to do a surprise attack on this uh, on this tank called Azubair. So we walked in um, and when we uh, secured the um, you know. Act- the perimeter of the town, the tanks came in and we received artillery and the tanks, you know, lit these guys up with depleted uranium. Um, and we did a, uh, an armored infantry assault dismounted and kind of took the village, uh, on foot. Um, and we definitely seen contact and we did a few, uh, uh high value target raids, uh, guys on guys that had killed, uh, British soldiers previously in the town and we captured them. And that was, uh, through CIA, uh, intelligence. Um, and then, you know, post Azubair, uh, we went and took Basra. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot more on the outskirts. Uh, the the remnants of the Iraqi army and, you know, people of Basra uh, were on the outskirts, keep trying to keep the uh, British away. But as soon as we get, kind of gained entry into the into city, most of it stopped. There were still sporadic uh, contacts, but a lot of it was on the outskirts. Okay, so... Uh, you know, initially the fight was against Saddam's sort of forces. Um, but after a certain point, um, you know, they, they had lost that sort of battle and uh, outside forces were coming in and setting up uh, in the north yeah. and in the south. Um, were you guys experiencing that on your second deployment? Um. Yeah, I think uh, we 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 knew uh, they, if it wasn't foreseen, then someone wasn't doing the job. But you know, obviously the South being Shiite, there was going to be massive uh, Iranian influence down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Muqtada al-Sada, he he obviously poked his head up um, and started uh, you know being a bit cheeky. So uh, yeah, his uh, Mahdi army and the Fedayeen they started uh, you know coming out of the woodwork uh, and. That's pretty much for us when the insurgency started. I think they had a bit of a pause between the actual um, invasion or liberation, depending on which side you're on, uh, and you know when they actually went to work. Um, so that was probably a few months. But by the time I got there for my second trip, it was uh, yeah, it was definitely uh, it was it was on. Um, and down south from Alamara, um, Basra, it was definitely uh, yeah, fighting season had began with the insurgency. And I think a lot of the uh, insurgents were actually um, ex-Iraqi military. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that was the biggest 
other than going into Iraq, of course, the biggest failure was um, just expanding their army. So yep. now you've got you know hundreds of thousands of people um, without a job, without a way to support the family, um, and they're pissed off. So what are they going to do? Um, they're going to take someone else's money um, to fight. So and that's that's pretty much what happened, really, isn't it? So um, yeah, big 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 fail there, I think. <clears throat> yeah, and, and especially in the south, uh, uh, you know, yeah. the, the Iranians. Uh, sent in their special forces and they were training and funding guys and um yeah. you know they they really we took saw it. that more on on the third tour um to be honest with the iranians okay um, and again I, I was infantry so uh you know the intelligence you get at infantry level is uh is not the best mm-hmm. is obviously dumbed down for uh for them guys so uh, uh, should i say at that stage but uh there was definitely rain influence. And we saw that with the IEDs and the manufacturing and, mm-hmm. um, you know, the EFP, that was, uh, the big one that came down South for us. Um, so it was definitely, uh, Iranians down there, but there was a lot, still a lot of Iraqi uh, resistance as well. So in your, your second deployment, you felt like you were fighting more Iraqi ex army guys. And then that was, that had changed by your third deployment. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, was there a a difference, or you know, what you guys felt was like a difference in skill level and and the guys who were fighting uh, from Iraqi ex military to Iranians? Um, <clears throat> to be honest, where and again, <clears throat> where I was, I was in, I was in Basra. The battalion um, were in Alamara, which is f- a little bit further north, and they they had it uh, really tough up there. Um, and the fighting was, you know, it was it was huge. Where in Basra, it was it was uh, more uh, reserved. So a lot of it was there was just no jobs, uh, and they wanted jobs. And you know, you, you know, there was terrorist groups up there saying, "Hey, here's here's an AK, here's some money, go and shoot the British soldiers." And they were in a place called the Pink Palace, where there was people protesting that wanted uh, work or whatever. And you know, there was thousands of people, and these these terrorists would give. Uh, these uh, Iraqis <clears throat> guns and they'd go and get shot and then they'd give someone else money to go and get the gun and to shoot the, 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 the infidel, the Brits, uh, and they'd go and get shot and there's bodies piling up. <clears throat> um, there was, you know, it was just, uh, IED central. Um, and it was a lot more, uh, dangerous up in Alamara than it was for us down in Basra. And that said, it was still, it was still quite bad, but we were essentially just, putting up with the tribal aspects um, of the Shiites down in uh, Basra. I mean, they've been under the thumb of Saddam Hussein for however many years. Um, so they were still trying to find their feet away from him. <clears throat> and, yeah, it was just tribal. So one, you know, you had the Route 1, um, and one side of the road would be one tribe, the other side of the road would be another tribe, and they'd fight each other. <clears throat> so in between that, we were still trying to have a, an in- impact on uh, the militia. And we'd still go and uh, push that, but... As uh, infantry soldiers, you know, we were very uh, reactionary. So we'd go out and do vehicle checkpoints. Um, we'd do house searches, um, but uh, and you know, patrol just to own own the area. But um, for the most part, it was very reactionary. Um, but uh, yeah, they definitely had it worth worse uh, up in Alamara. So the the tribes that were fighting each other was that different Shia tribes? Yes, mate. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that's very interesting. So yeah. it wasn't like they were all united and uh, you know under one banner, sort of. 
I'm sure they were at some stage, but at that stage, they're still trying to find their way, right? Um, mm, so, okay. um, you know, they, they, these people have, um, you know, enmities going back decades um, just through tribe stuff. He married his sister. Oh, I don't know, whatever it is. But, um, yeah, it goes back decades, and they're just, yeah, trying to find their way. I but it, it was still bad. And on, on that second trip, I remember uh, uh, one day we, we got uh, – just this massive, massive gunfire coming from around. We, at this stage, we're still based just north of Basra. Um, huge gunfire. And uh, so we jumped in the Warriors, went out on patrol, and uh, there's all these civvies out with guns shooting up into the air. We didn't have a clue what was going on. Um, but obviously, at that, at that stage, um, they were telling us, oh, Saddam, Saddam, and they were putting their wrists together to, to say that the Americans had uh, arrested him. So, um, yeah, obviously, that was when Delta went in and uh, picked him up. But uh, we were expecting, you know, an, a huge uprising, but it wasn't. It was just the fact that, uh, yeah, he, Saddam had been caught. So that was pretty good. Right. Yeah, and I think uh, the insurgency started at some point after that, right? Or had it already started? Um, well, yeah, again, who knows how long they've been prepping. But for this, yeah, the second, this, the third trip for us in Basra, and most of my stuff was done in Basra, so we noticed it more so in 2006. That's mm. when it really amped up. Right. Uh, everyone was getting getting hit with IEDs, um, and we had a we were based in the center of uh, uh, Basra in a in a place called um, Old State Building, and uh, we were essentially used for a QRF for the city, um, and we were pretty much a tethered goat. Um, for anyone to come and have a, have a hit at us. I think we recorded something like 120 small arms, uh, you know, 150 rocket attacks, uh, close to that same um, with mortar rounds hitting the compound. Um, and uh, and I think there's like six or seven uh, IEDs um, hits on the vehicles. Uh, we had a an M2, the equivalent, the M2 Bradley, the Warrior. Uh, we had a, um, an EFP go through one, uh, fortunately, it, it, they set off slightly too early. So what they did, they got expanding foam. Uh, they put the EFP in expanding foam. They rolled it in. Uh, they cut it. They rolled it uh, in dirt, and they replaced a curbstone, and it was on a command wire. Um, and fortunately for the guys in the, in the vehicle, they set off slightly too quick, um, and it hit the front, went through the bar armor, wrap, wrap armor, heat armor, and the chobham armor, deflected off the exhaust lever, and went above the turret. Had they literally waited a second, um, you know, the ten guy or the eight guys in the back and the guys in the turret uh, would have been killed. Um, it was just, and you know, it was just luck. Um, so we definitely saw an uptick in uh, hits. We had guys uh, on sentry um, at night time hitting the chest, but fortunately they had their rifle across their chest and it's hit the rifle, it's destroyed the rifle and just knocked him on his ass. <clears throat> we had a, an all eight, all out camp attack um, with, you know, hundreds of people attacking the camp. Um, and uh, at this stage, I was the uh, company uh, quartermaster sergeant in the infantry. You kind of take that role as you progress through your career. I was on the roof with the, uh, I think you guys call it the 230, the uh, FN uh, GPMG. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we had, we had guys f fresh out of training in, in the in the century uh, in the Sangers, what we call the Sangers, uh, with the Minimai, and they were you know hooking in large and people firing over the top of the uh, the Sangers with two o threes, and then we sent the Warriors out and just chain gun people as they were going you know going down the street that were armed. So it, it was it was a pretty big day, um, and uh, it, it it was yeah it was it was full on. Um, we were quite penned in because there's only two ways you could go to get out of uh, the camp left or right um so we would pretty much be hit most of the time uh we left camp uh and unfortunately like i say 
we were quite dulled in at this stage um, with RPGs and mortars. And uh, we lost uh, Matty Cornish, um, who was killed by a mortar strike. Um, and, <clears throat> yeah, um, I think we had eight wounded in action, some when they were just taking a shower. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a pretty big, uh, pretty big trip for us on that 2006 tour. And that was, yeah, more, more insurgency-based. There was a special forces contingent uh, in Basra at the time, uh, and we uh, detached a platoon from uh, our company to go and work with them just to taxi them around uh, the battle space down south um, in, in the Warriors, just so they had a bit more freedom of movement. Um, and they were, you know, always up at the old state building and, and launching from there because that's, you know, where a lot of the insurgency was based was around us in the center of the center of the city okay so how long was your second deployment so that was a third trip but all the trips were roughly about six months okay okay um okay but in between your your second and third um you had decided to go to a special forces selection yeah um can you talk so about that my yeah, I can, mate. So my my uh, aim was always to go for two to SAS um, in the army. That's the penultimate uh, unit, uh, you know, in uh, uh, British Army. Obviously, you've got the special boat service um, in the in the Marines, um, and then you've got uh, what was known then as Fourteen Intelligence Company or the DET or Fourteen. And there's heaps of different names for it. <clears throat> they were designed in uh, 1973. Uh, specifically for operations in Northern Ireland mm-hmm. um, as a plain clothes unit. Um, and they were initially trained by the SES. Um, and they specialize in a number of things, intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance. Uh, and they recruit for more uh, different aspects of the military, including women. Uh, there's heaps of books out there. That you, well, there's not. There's only a few, actually. But uh, one's called The Operator, and the other, the other one is called uh, She Who Dead. Um, and the primary role, uh, other than Northern Ireland, was to support SES and SBS operations, uh, I won't go into exactly what it is they do because that's uh, kind of close hold. But any any tier one unit um, worth their salt would have the same uh, capabilities replicated in their unit. So my um, my company sergeant major at the time um, was Special Reconnaissance Regiment or 14 in, um, and I said, hey, I want to go and do selection, and he's he's taught me into going for uh, the debt. Um, so I ended up. Uh, attending what they call Camp One, which is their selection uh, in 2005, which I passed. Uh, I went on to what they call Camp Two, um, which is their continuation, or what, what in Australia we call the reinforcement cycle. Uh, in the same same year, uh, the whole process is around six months, um, and I got to the final exercise. So I, I got right up to the the border study um, for the for those to go on to the final exercise and they start bringing in um, a number of different tactics they use into the final exercise. Uh, so they get rid of anyone they're not going to take on the final exercise and potentially that may fail. Um, so they don't have to show these uh, TTPs, which is, which is fine. So I uh, was sent back to my battalion in Germany uh, at about the five month mark, but I was invited to come back on the next course in, in uh, 2000s. Sorry, this is 2005 yet yeah, in 2006. So um, <clears throat> I did. I came back on the next course, um, and uh, I got pretty much to the same stage. Unfortunately for me, um, my my uh, partner at the time, uh, her appendix burst, uh, 
I'm pretty sure it was her appendix. Um, and she had septicemia and peritonitis. Uh, and she was in a coma. So the doctors had opened her up and cleaned her out, but she was in a bad way. So I pulled myself off the course uh, and went back to Germany to look after my kids. Um, you know, I was I was devastated, but family obviously has to come first. Um, in regards to that first course, I think I think it was Henry Ford said something along the lines of failure is simply the opportunity to begin again, uh, but this time more intelligently. So, uh, yeah, I should have listened, really, and, you know, just gone for 2-2. Two, two. Uh, the writing was on the wall from the first course for, for me uh, and a number of other people. Uh, there was a few instructors that were, uh, let's just say, fucking assholes. Um, and they targeted the senior NCOs on the course. And you know, I don't say for a minute I failed because of them. Um, I failed because I made mistakes. Uh, but these guys just made it more difficult. And they had hit lists. And there was a number of senior NCOs who were uh, uh, recon instructors uh, and excellent, excellent soldiers that were just targeted throughout the course, and they, they all went before me. I was I was the last guy to go um, on that first course, uh, and I should have seen the writing on the wall uh, that I wasn't really the fit uh, they wanted. Um, so I didn't, and I went back. Um, but uh, you know that's history. Unfortunately, when I got back to battalion, um, my uh, chain of command decided that they needed me uh, back in Iraq. Um, so. I had to get my mother-in-law over uh, to Germany to look after my kids and redeployed. And for me, that was uh, that was, you know, a bridge too far. Uh, they clearly didn't give a shit about my family, so I was I was pulling the pin and I was going to leave. So uh, I'd signed off. So in the British Army, you have to give a year's notice. So I'd signed off and I was just looking for another job. Um, but yeah, then that's when the Iraq uh, tour came about, and or the, the third Iraq tour came about. Um, and that was probably, like say, the the busiest one. So once that happened, when they told you, you know, you have to go back to Iraq, uh, did you know right there that you were done or? Yep, I was done. Um, I, I love being a soldier. Um, I'd always wanted to be a soldier. But uh, for me, the fact that, um, you know, you're, you're a number, not a name. And uh, for me, the fact that a position, a, a storeman's position was put before uh, my family's welfare was just a, a a red flag um so i was nah, i was i was done i'd had enough time to leave mm, okay so then you know <clears throat> does that affect you uh actually in theater in iraq or are you you know doing your best Not to kind all. of okay i see yeah no there's no there's nothing you know is is uh <laughs> you, you got to look out for the guy on the left and the right of you i i, I didn't particularly uh um appreciate the organization right but uh the blokes in, in the company you know they're over there fighting for their lives and you've got to back them up and they, you want them to back you up so there's yeah there's no there's no uh there's no difference in how you uh get get in, get involved with you know gunfights and stuff it's still good fun um yeah so there's yeah there's no difference okay so um all right so you you complete that deployment um and then, like, what's happening when you get home? Like, can you explain all that? <clears throat> so at this stage, I still haven't got a clue what I'm going to do. Um, and I bump into a, an Australian soldier serving in the British Army. Um, and do you, because we're, you know, part of the Commonwealth, uh, you can kind of do that. Uh, I didn't realize uh, at this stage that 
there was a lateral transfer scheme for soldiers who wanted to leave the British Army and come to the Australian Army. Uh, a lot of it was guys who had served 22 years but still wanted to serve. <clears throat> but there were one or two like me that had served, you know, a, a less time and wanted to transfer for a better standard of living. And at that stage, I, I'd served 14 so I found out there was this scheme. I investigated online um, and that, you know, we still only had one computer uh, for the company. So we had to fill out a log sheet when you're going to be on the computer. And it was just ran for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I investigated and sent an email away. And yeah, on my return, I pretty much went to London to the Australian embassy, had an, had an interview and uh, was accepted. Um, and then just had to go through all the process of paperwork, medicals, uh, to move across. So I was accepted uh, to go to New South Wales, a place called uh, Lone Pine Barracks in Singleton, which is the School of Infantry. Um, yeah, so I dropped a rank and went over as a sergeant. And it was probably from uh, the interview to transferring across was about nine months. Okay. Um, so in that nine months, were you still doing uh, like your... British Army duty, or were you done with that? Yeah, no, I was still doing it. So I, I, I've been promoted. Uh, so I was a, what we term as a colour sergeant, which is, I suppose, the equivalent of a staff sergeant. Um, <clears throat> and I, I taught on, or I, I planned and ran a junior non-commissioned officers course, so your mm. subject courses for corporal, um, which is about eight weeks, um, and ran uh, pre-selections for those guys going on their uh senior command course so yeah I was, I was still busy okay all right so then you you finally complete the process and you transfer uh into the australian army um you move over there uh, the, and you had to go through the entire like sort of basic training process again no no so i just dropped a rank so i i transferred across as sergeant um the process was seamless it was, it was really easy and the australian defense force made it uh really good you know they they moved all of my family's uh belongings from germany to uh, new south wales and australia um business class flights they they paid all our food and accommodation stuff all the way over and you know picked us up at the airport um it was really really good um so it was it was I suppose they're looking for uh, critical, uh, vul- not critical uh, lacks in their defence force, and uh, they're recruiting people from the UK to fill them. Um, so it's it's a lot cheaper to you know buy that experience and actually build it up in Australia, I suppose. So um, they did look after you, uh, and yes, yeah, I forgot your initial question. No, just just talking about like uh, the the process. Oh yeah, of, sorry, like, phase yeah. training. No, I didn't. Mm. Um, so I I transferred across to the sergeant. So I had to do a few courses because um, initially I was I was running uh, range qualification courses. Um, so I had to do uh, a few courses here just to get me on on the same net with their uh, terms and terminologies and the way they did business. But a lot of it was the same as the UK, so it was really easy. And then I started instructing straight off the bat. Um, they're big on paperwork in Australia, so I had to sit down and you know go through uh, you know weapon handling tests with the, with Ostia and get that record of, uh, of accomplishments signed. Um, so yeah, you know, and other stuff like grenades and claymores and um, just just to make sure that all, all the boxes were ticked. But uh, then I started instructing pretty pretty soon. Okay, and how long were you instructing um, initially there? 
so I got there in August 07. It probably took a month, six weeks to sort myself out. Um, and yeah, like I say, within six weeks, uh, I was I was instructing. So initially, I was instructing uh, sergeants and officers how to run ranges. Um, but then I, I was posted uh, relatively quickly to the tactics wing, teaching uh, the officers coming out of their uh, equivalent of West Point, your equivalent of West Point, should I say, uh, uh, infantry tactics, and also uh, sergeants, what we call the supervisor infantry operations platoon. Um, so I was teaching that tactic stuff. And that was, you know, the first time I realized um, Australia actually had a special forces and, uh, and uh, the special air service regiment. Because these guys were coming on course. Okay. So you're actually meeting these guys. Yeah, so they were coming across. They had to do the course at that stage uh, for promotion to sergeant. It's changed now. We, we kind of run our own in-house courses, but mm. then it was, uh, yeah, it was. Um, they had to come over and do a, a, a an eight, nine, ten week course, whatever it was. So uh, up to this point, you're, you know, you were displeased with how you you were treated in the British infantry, but now you've spent some time uh, in the Australian Army, and overall, your impression is positive. Um, of the soldiers, yes. Um, mm. The soldiers coming through on the courses were good to go. Uh, I wasn't overly uh, enamoured with the school of infantry. Is They posted a lot of old people there. It wasn't somewhere people wanted to go, and people that went there uh, tended to get uh, extended um, and stay there because they wanted to be there. Um, so it wasn't a great place. But the soldiers coming through were no different to the British soldiers uh, and American soldiers, if I'm honest, um, that I've worked with um, they they were keen. Uh, they wanted they wanted to fight, and they were competent. Um, so it's kind of conflicting, yeah. Okay. All right. So, so you realize that uh, Australia has a a special forces uh, unit, uh, the SASR. Um, so once you started meeting these guys, did you think right away like I'm gonna go to selection, or how was that? Yeah, I kind of. I kind of dropped the hint to a few of the guys on the course and they said, Oh, you know, you should, you should put your application in, come across, give it a crack. Um, and yeah, that was probably the, uh, the, um, first, first inkling I was going to, I was going to go for it. Um, and then, yeah, I decided to do a bit of research on it uh, speak to a few friends in the UK. And, you know, um, one of the guys I spoke to, Harry, an old mentor of mine said, oh, them, them Aussies, there, there's some tough buggers, them Aussie SAS. So um, I thought, why not? So I did a bit of research and into the history and <clears throat> it, it, it's not well known, but it goes back to World War II, <clears throat> um, probably even further, to be honest. But the real, uh, I suppose, the first uh, unit um, that were designated, SA, uh, sorry, Special Forces is Z and M Special Forces. So uh, Z Special Forces were primarily recon and sabotage uh, and they... Uh, did uh, guerrilla uh, warfare um, during World War Two? So uh, there's a couple of good examples. Uh, Op Jaywick, they uh, commanded a Singaporean boat called the Crate, uh, and they travelled thousands of k's through hostile uh, Japanese territory. Territory, sorry. Um, you know, they browned their skins up. They wore the sarongs um, just so they could fit in. Uh, they got to a stage where they were, you know. Uh, I, Again, the distance eludes me, but it's a is a fair whack in a canoe. Uh, but they set out on canoe and they, um, you know, scuttled a heap of ships in um, in the harbour in Singapore. Um, and that was probably the longest uh, naval. Um, well, it was, it was an army, obviously, but it was probably the longest uh, seaborne um, 
special forces operation back then and uh, i don't think there's very many that would uh you know kind of beat that now they tried something similar again on Op Rimau um, against the Japs in Singapore again, um, but this resulted in the deaths of about 23, if my memory serves me correct. <clears throat> um, and they were either killed in action or executed by the Japanese. Um, so that was Z Special Forces. Uh, M Special Forces uh, were initially called the Coast Coast Watchers, <clears throat> um, and they they pretty much just, uh, you know, reported on Jap Navy movements. Um, and again, a large percentage of these were captured and executed by the Japanese. Um, funny story, um, JFK, obviously it was not, JFK is not a funny story, but uh, in regards to him and the Australian Special Forces, when he was uh, uh, sank, uh, his boat was sank by the Japs in World War Two. <clears throat> him and 11 other guys uh, up in Guadalcanal uh, took um, refuge on one of the islands, uh, found the locals. Uh, JFK was the obviously the officer, so he wrote um, a message on a, uh, a coconut, and the locals got that to M Special Forces, um, and they were the ones uh, with you know the locals uh, to get him and his men uh, kind of uh, extracted out of that area and back to uh, Australia and the US. Oh so, no uh, way! That's yeah, pretty cool. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool, hey. Oh, that's awesome. So that, that's the, uh, I suppose, the background of special forces. <clears throat> um, Australian special forces at the moment uh, consist of SASR. Uh, they're the, I suppose, equivalent of uh, your army Delta. Um, you've got two commando regiment over in Sydney. Uh, they run a uh, counterterrorism, uh, domestic counterterrorism uh, capability as well as us. Um, you've got special operations engineer regiment um, and <clears throat> a number of different schools and supporting units, but the two main, I suppose, teeth arms of our special operations command is SSR and and two commando. And the, the two um, commandos are a relatively new unit, right? So they started in 1996. They they started out as uh, four RAR commando, so four Royal Australian Regiment commando. Hmm. Um, it wasn't an auspicious start, if I'm honest, uh, and it's, it's not down to. Uh, anyone in that unit uh, the unit are full of uh, hard charges they're, they're you know they're all hitters um but it took a little bit of a while for them to uh you know break their teeth and that was probably down to sasr to a certain ex extent and and the senior members not wanting to give up jobs or whatever it may be right um but it took them a little while uh, to be taken seriously um and once they like say cut their teeth and got stuck into it uh, in afghanistan um they were forced to be reckoned with Mm. Okay, so uh, so you go to selection. Uh, can you talk about uh, what selection was like? Or yeah, of course I can. Um, so it's and we we've done bloody uh, TV shows on it. So search or warrior, it's not the best, but it'll give you an idea uh, of selection. So uh, with selection, you do you have to do a pre-selection, uh, and that just uh, incorporates um, a bit of navigational testing fitness testing so you do a, what we call a bft or bfa which is a mile and a half in under 10 minutes i think it is um a combat fitness test uh or assessment which is about eight miles 44 uh pounds um 20 kilometer test um 3.2 test with eight kilos in under 16 minutes um so that's just the pre-selection to be able to get onto onto uh, the actual course itself um the course itself is around 21 plus days uh and you just get fragged for 21 days it is it is set out um in a specific way to have uh um 
outputs, if you like. Um, so we, we it's, it's designed to see people um, when they're hungry, sleep deprived, and see how they act. So that's that's the end phase. And so, you know, the lead up phases are to get you there. Um, so it's not just a case of fraggy for fragging you. It's, it's, it's a case of, um, you know, it's, it's designed in a certain way. So the first six days uh, is a lot of PT, um, tests, navigational uh, exercises to prove you can nav. So we're not just gonna send you out in the, in the bush, in the Australian bush on your own if you can't navigate. Um, you're taught a number of things and expected to remember it. <clears throat> uh, you get put through um, exercises as a team where you uh, have to show, uh, you know, you can think and act on your feet um, and you can work as a team and things like that. Uh, the ones you the ones you fail, you get given a brick and you have to carry it um, on some some exercises. Um, and if you if you pass a stand, the brick gets taken uh, gets taken away. Um, but nine times out of ten, you're getting another brick and you're carrying another brick. Yeah. <laughs> um, then you go on to Happy Wanderer, which is an individual uh, navigational exercise, um, and it's you're on your own. For instance, mine, uh, I was down in the Stirling Ranges, which is uh, in the south of Western Australia, and it's just the mountain ranges. Uh, and we, we had four days where you just uh, 55 kilos uh, and you're walking on your own uh, to checkpoint to checkpoint mm. uh, and from from recollection I think I covered about 155 kilometers um, and uh, scaled about four peaks um, yeah so that, that's uh, designed to uh, you know just tire you out again uh, as the course is obviously ongoing um, you're getting fed less um, people are pulling off, uh, so you're carrying more. Um, and then after that four-day period on your own, uh, you go into what they call lucky dip. Uh, and essentially, it's it's little to no sleep. You literally, uh, you get an hour, potentially, just to close your eyes and reset. Um, you, you're not being fed. Um, and you put through two major tasks during the day and uh, one during the night just to keep you awake. And um, it's, you know, extreme uh, physical um, and it, it tests you and it brings out people that um, snap under pressure and it brings out people that are lazy uh, and it just shows the, you know, internal fortitude of that guy, I suppose. Um, and yeah, it kind of selects, for the most part, um, the right person. So that's just the first 21 days. So once you you get through that, you, you, you're past selection and you're you're in the unit. And then there's, I'm assuming there's a period where you're you're trained up to the the standards of the unit. Yeah. So you're not in the unit. If we we had, I think it was probably 150 people, maybe even more, start my course. Uh, we had approximately 31 finish the selection, um, but there's only like 24, maybe even slightly less, pass and go on to what we call the reinforcement cycle. Hmm. Uh, the reinforcement cycle. Um, so you get a week uh, after selection to recover. But whilst you're doing that, you're still doing uh, physios and, you know, fixing your, your injuries from selection and paperwork and uh, all that kind of stuff. And then it starts uh, again the following week and you're straight on with the uh, special forces weapons. You do roping, uh, you do uh, your medical, which is eight weeks um, 
as an advanced first aider, you do your communications courses, uh, you do your basic pa- basic uh, parachuting, which is your static line, uh, finishing with two jumps into the ocean. Um, then you go on to the jungle course or what we call the patrol course, uh, and that's another big gate, uh, pass or fail into the unit. Uh, mm. And if you fail it, you get removed. Uh, you get a second chance the next uh, the next year, um, but you don't continue with courses. Um, and then from that, uh, it's like I say, it's the next gate and you move through uh, a number of different courses, DEMS and uh, method of entry. And you do uh, another big gate, which is what we call the target prosecution continuum, which is your CQB, your mount uh, and all of that stuff. And you finish up uh, as a, uh, you know, a team member shooting past someone's head 200 mils under MVGs at night uh, in an unknown environment at, you know, uh, live live ammunition. Um, so clearly that's a, a big thing uh, and it has been for the last 15, 20 years because we've been doing a lot of that uh, in SESR, in Afghanistan and other places. So um, that's, a, that's a huge uh, gate for us. Once you pass that, unless you fuck up hugely, you're, you're pretty much in the unit. Um, so... Yeah, it's in, in total, it's about 18 months of courses uh, mm. before you're actually in the unit uh, and before you uh, get your beret um, or what the UK call badged. I'm not quite, sh- quite, sh- uh, quite sure what Delta will call it, but um, yeah, you're force assigned to that unit. Mm, that's interesting. So uh, yeah, 18 months, that's quite long. Um, it is, mate, yeah. Yeah. And it's full on. Is is you know you you you're working uh, away from camp. So even if you, you your family moves over after six or seven months, you're still away. You're still even if you're in Perth or Western Australia, you're still away from home, not home at night time. So it's it's full on. And when when uh, when I finished my first trip, um, we were pretty much straight to Thailand. Come back straight uh, straight away training for Afghanistan, and we deployed for six months um, to Afghanistan. So it's a uh, it's a busy time. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the uh, when you're talking about the the two commandos, how they have they work a, a domestic counterterrorism role. That you yeah. guys do as well. Um, we do. Yeah, that's completely different from how it's done in the states. Um, can you talk about yeah. that at all? Yeah, I mean, in the states, you've obviously got your SWAT, uh, you've got FBI, HRT, and all that sort of stuff. <clears throat> Here, for a long time, we haven't. I think it's being replicated, um, or the the capabilities are being built up here within the federal police. Um, but for a long time, we haven't had it. Um, back in the day, you know, the Iranian embassy siege, um, it was, you know, cordon, call out, talk to the terrorists. Um, so we replicated um, what the Brits had done, I suppose, um, and provided that capability for army should uh, the civilian authorities not be able to cope so they could hand it over to us and we could go in there and, uh, you know, take care of it. That's that's not really happened. Um over in Australia, uh, and terrorist TTPs have changed from, you know, uh, one and a pizza and a helicopter and a million dollars. Um, they want to kill everyone. They want to get the media there and, uh, you know, uh, that sort of thing. So um, I think in regards to that, it's more it's more the, 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 the general duties police officer that's going to deal with it. Um, so we do hold the capability. We don't think it's ever likely we're going to be called in to do that because uh, Australian federal police and state police now have capabilities that do that. Um, but we are still uh, prepared 
to do it, but um, focus on other things as well. So we're not just putting all our eggs in one basket. Um, but yeah, Army does have uh, both capabilities. In the UK, it's relatively simple because geographically, it's such a small, such a small area. So you, you can uh, you can react uh, from the south of England to the north of England relatively quickly. In Australia, you can't because it's so vast. Um, so we needed. Uh, different units or, or different elements, shall I say, uh, in, to be able to react as quickly as possible to, um, you know, different geographical locations. So one is based on the East Coast, one is based on the West, and we have different uh, areas that we're responsible for uh, to back up, you know, state and uh, federal authorities. I see. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's a much bigger landmass than the UK. Um, yeah. Okay. So... Um, so you get to Afghanistan, uh, it's your first deployment uh, in the SAS. Uh, obviously, the, the environment is different from Iraq. Um, <clears throat> so two questions, can you talk about that? Like what the difference sort of was in, in terms of the enemy and then what the difference was uh, going from the infantry to special forces? Before we continue, I'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Four Patriots. Drought, inflation, and even new policies are pushing America's food supply near its breaking point. That's why survival food is more important than ever. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriot Survival Food Kits. It's not ordinary food. We're talking good for 25 years survival food. Handpicked right in a family-owned facility in the USA and giving jobs to over 200 Americans. The kits are compact sturdy, water-resistant, and stack easily. They have different delicious breakfast, lunch, and dinners. You can make these meals in less than 20 minutes. Just add boiling water, simmer, and serve. And right now, you can go to 4patriots.com and use the code RECON to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store, including this three-month survival kit. You'll get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order, plus free shipping on orders over $97. They're called Four Patriots because a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code RECON to get 10% off. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code RECON. Start building your own stockpile today. Um, <clears throat> so the difference is for me with Afghanistan or should I say the big notable differences uh, in Iraq was in Iraq, everything I did was pretty much urban. Uh, and as an infantry guy, um, I was kind of reactionary. Um, going across to Afghanistan, clearly um, where we were anyway in Uzgan, it wasn't uh, the urban uh, sprawl that we were uh, getting involved in as much. It was out in the valleys, out in the villages, uh, going through the dash, through the green. Um, so straight away, you know, the operating environment was hugely different. In regards to infantry and special forces, uh, call a kit straight away. Um, and by that stage, because we'd lost a number of people uh, with IED strikes, we managed to get some US uh, pilots and airframes to fly for us. So we were doing a lot of uh, kill capture stuff um, via helicopters. We still went out with armored vehicles um, and did stuff where, where tactics dictated, but a lot of it was, uh, like I say, kill capture um, and we're going and hitting targets uh, that were affecting um, the rebuild of Ruzgan. Um, 
So we were essentially pigeonholed, if you like, initially into a Ruzgan province, just hitting targets that affected um, that sort of stuff uh, in a Ruzgan. Uh, so they were the, the notable differences. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, and what what was it like in terms of uh, you know the the competence of the guys who were fighting there as well? So I find the Afghans were more proud, if that makes sense. Um, even the locals. Uh, I find the Iraqis lazy. Uh, and again, I'm only talking from my experience. Um, they always had a handout. Um, they always wanted more. You know, I, I, I watched as um, we delivered a number of uh, Mustang police cars to police force in Iraq. Uh, and, you know, the, the next time we went over, it was kind of like, what have you done for me lately? And it was like a week in between. Uh, the Afghans, uh, especially out in the valleys, they were like, hey, you know, all we want you to do is fucking go and kill these guys. We don't want you in a village. We don't want wells. We don't want schools. Let us let us sort our own shit out. But uh, just you know, go and kill the bad guys. So they they were willing to get amongst it themselves. Where I found the Iraqis lazy. Um, but that again, that's my personal take on it. Mm, okay. Um, and uh, you know, what was it like going on these sort of killer capture operations, um, you know, <clears throat> working with American helicopters, stuff like that. So the American helicopters um, were, were great. They were mostly National Guard, um, and they were brilliant. Uh, so keen to fly for us. They learned really quick. Um, they had really uh, relevant input into planning uh, the mission sets with the patrol commanders, and um, you know they, they were a real uh, force multiplier for us. Uh, and we went from targeting from vehicles, and again, uh, I, whilst I still did some of the stuff, the, the vast majority of it was before my time. Um, they, we went from targeting and getting uh, maybe two or three JPELs uh, taken off uh, the, the target board, whether killed or captured is irrelevant, um, during a six-month rota- or five-month rotation, to um, 17 or 18 JPELs being killed or captured uh, via the helicopter assaults. Um, so, yeah, they, they were brilliant. Um, and... You know, like I say, they they really did uh, put into the planning and the after action reviews uh, to enable us to get more targets and, or should I say, be more lethal and uh, to save uh, us getting shot at. For instance, instead of landing on the X, which we may have done initially, uh, they were like, "Hey, let's let's land at a small arms range, so that way we can't get hit with uh, an RPG as we come into land. That's our most vulnerable or whatever." Um, you know, with route plan. Um, with route planning, yeah, let's let's not go this way. Let's go that way because the wind's there and it will deflect the noise or whatever it might be. So they, they were great. They were really really good. Um, the airframes sometimes you had the kilo models. I think it was sometimes you had the Lima models. Uh, one was quieter than the other, um, but the pilots themselves were fantastic. Okay, so at a point, uh, I don't know if it was right away <laughs> or eventually. Um, you end up working with canines. Um, was that right away? And then can you talk about uh, your experiences doing that? Yeah, so you have, we, we have, and I know uh, the U.S. Uh, guys have it slightly different. They have direct support guys running dogs. Over here we have operators running dogs. Hmm. Um, so my initial uh, uh, kind of take on the dogs was work, walking into the troop office and getting a bite on the back of my leg by Cujo, um, who's, who's the troop dog. Uh, the <laughs> next time I suppose I really had anything to do with Cujo was, uh, in 2010, uh, we were, 
uh, going after a high value target that the Brits wanted captured or killed. Um, and <clears throat> we put in, and as we're coming in to land on this guy, um, they were both gunned up. So the objective was shot. Uh, and the bodyguard kind of ran off and hid, uh, took a defensive position. <clears throat> so we knew where he was. We pushed up an extended line. And as I was coming around uh, the berm uh, to sit, to get eyes on this guy, uh, Cujo come sprinting past my leg uh, and <clears throat> started to bite this uh, this uh, this bodyguard or driver, whatever you want to, Talib. Um, and uh, he was trying to upend his gun and shoot Cujo. So I was very cognizant of where the dog was and this guy was getting ragged all over the place and he was moving to try and shoot the dog. Um, so I didn't want to shoot the dog. So I took careful aim and trying to hit him in the head from about 15 to 20 meters. Uh, I think it was from recollection. And the first two shots missed and the, the third third shot caught him in the head. Um, I was really cognizant of not shooting the dog, but also wanted to shoot this guy before he managed to shoot the dog. So they're, they're force multipliers. Um, They've saved so many lives in Australia. Uh, on later trips, they saved, uh, you know, uh, saved troops from get, getting ambushed. And that was probably the reason why I did uh, the course after 2010 and became a dog handler. Oh, I see. So, okay. So, um, so that was just an experience with your dog in combat where it actually made a difference. <clears throat> yeah, 100%. I wasn't a dog handler on my first trip. I was just, I was the new guy in the in the troop, uh, in the team. Uh, and yeah, I was, I was, I was at the back. Uh, I'd carry the ladder, you know, to get over the compound walls and I'd watch the rear. Um, but, uh, it's still an important job. And one of the jobs we had, uh, in 2010, when I was watching the rear, when stuff was going on behind me, um, <clears throat> I've, I've managed to, under, under MVGs, I spotted a guy, uh, with a PKM, uh, running up a hill, um, about 250 meters away. And the, we, we still have pec twos at that stage and I wasn't confident, uh, that at 250 meters, I could get this guy with a uh, with a laser. So the patrol commander spoke to the Apaches we had over, overhead and uh, lased this guy, and the Apaches cleaned him up. So it's definitely an important job um, and one to take seriously. Uh, but uh, yeah, I wasn't always the number one through the door, if you like. It was it was uh, kind of let's see how you go, and uh, we'll bed you in slowly and push you to the front slowly. So it was good learning experience. I see. Okay, um, so uh, you said your initial deployment to Afghanistan, that was six months? So we do five months tours. So the Army, in their infinite wisdom, said, decided, hey, if we give you five months, um, instead of six months, you don't get R&R. So uh, you can stay over there for five months, and we don't have to worry about getting you back. I'm sure there's another reason, but that, that was uh, you know kind of the way we took it. So yeah, it was five months. It was uh, deploy over five months straight, and then come home. Um, and then we went straight on to uh, what we refer to as team, which kind of terrorism and overseas recovery. Um, and yeah, we uh, do another six months on that. So you're operational pretty much uh, all the time. Um, yeah. <clears throat> So I, I know, uh, you know, here in the States and, and the, the Brits as well, um, they'll have like a team deployed and then a team on standby. Is that kind of the yeah. the status? Yeah, it okay. is, yeah. Okay. Um, and then as far as the dogs, uh, did you guys have the dogs uh, prior to the invasion of Afghanistan or is that something that came along? So, no. So our uh, capability got stood up in 2005. And again, we saw uh, your guys with dogs and we were like, yeah, that looks, that looks pretty good, uh, you know, as a course, uh, force multiplier. So um, 
Yeah, we started ours in 2005. So initially it was the Air Force that came over and taught our guys. Um, and after that, it was it was kind of like the operators saying, right, we need this, we don't need this. And we come up with a course from our, from our, uh, our experiences uh, and time away in Afghanistan. Um, and then the dog capability just, just grew from there pretty much. Yeah, and the re- you know I suppose the main reason why I got into uh, doing the dogs was when we were ambushed in 2010, and uh, yeah, Jason was killed. Uh, had had we had a dog, it, things may have been different. But that was my whole take on uh, why I wanted to become a dog handler. And are you able to talk about like what what specifically made you think the dog would have made a difference, or is it the, the yeah, circumstance? Uh, yeah. So- yeah, no, no worries. So we went in, uh, we did a uh, hit on a village in uh, north of Kandahar, um, and it was a dry hole. Uh, we were pulling out, moving back to a uh, HLZ, and at that stage, you know, during the fighting season in, in the height of summer, uh, the crops were quite high, um, and we were moving along a dry wood line, trying to get across to the HLZ. Uh, sorry, creek line, dry creek line. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it, the, the, the creek line was huge. So we were pushing around all these really thick vegetation wood blocks um, to find a, a suitable place to cross. Uh, we'd been up to the creek about three or four times, discounted it because it was too wide. Uh, and on maybe the third or fourth, whatever it was, um, two guys pushed across. Uh, and then it was Brownie and myself. And then the two I see was at the rear, Adam. Um, and we got uh, ambushed from uh, from the left um, in this really thick wood line. Um, the Taliban uh, had set it really really well uh, so they pushed him from the back so there's no you know sign around the front of the the wood um they they cut a slight um a keyhole through the actual foliage and there was a slight burn probably maybe i don't know 60 70 centimeters high uh, and they cut a, a, you know a path through that uh, and as jason um passed it and he was in the middle of the patrol so again they, they showed good tactics uh they opened up on him i don't think they expected us to be as close they were hoping they'd catch us down the river uh and that way they could use their cone of fire and beaten zone to get the whole patrol uh unfortunately uh, for them uh, and jason uh it was uh you know we were really really close so the pkm was probably uh, about five to six meters uh back in the wood line um, they had two positions with uh, AKs or RPKs, whatever they might have been uh, further back. I didn't actually see them. Um, so Jason fell pretty much uh, directly in front of this machine gun, uh, and I wasn't too far behind him. So I dropped uh, on my back, uh, returned fire from my back, and managed to uh, crawl out um, literally, like I say, a few few meters, maybe five, six, seven meters back to where Adam was, the two I see, uh, behind a little dirt mound and, uh, you know, fire into the wood line. Um, so, yeah, we I managed to get back to there. And, uh, yeah, we just hooked in um, to the wood line. Um, Jason was uh, pretty much unconscious straight away. Uh, and I was kind of screaming to him to get him to come back towards me. Uh, he, he didn't hear me, obviously. Uh, I attempted to get out and get him and pull him back a few times, but just showing my head around the side of that berm uh, I, I took a burst of pkm you know it hit the berm and just you know blind me with dust so i knew as soon as i left that uh, cover um i was i was going to wear a face full of uh, 762 uh long so at that stage my thought process was he's dead um and i couldn't get out to get him uh, and as this was going through my mind and i was calling him you know to kind of crawl to me and uh 
the patrol commander uh, came running in from the right hand side uh, and I screamed at him uh, and so did the toy see Adam not to um, and he's running straight down the barrel of the PKM so he stood in front of the PKM trying to uh, get rid of uh, his gun so he could pick up Jason you know drag him out and um, he's got a burst of PKM come straight through his legs. That's how close the PKM was, um, went straight through his legs. He's, he's kind of realized straight away where the, the gun is and it's right in front of him. So he's dropped down behind Jason and the next burst come in uh, and raked his back. So his uh, body armor's probably got about 10 holes in it. Mm. Um, yeah, and his, his antenna's been shot off. He's got a 7.62 uh, lodged in his camelback. Um, yeah, it was pretty loose. Uh, so I've seen him, his body deflate and I'm like, oh, you know the patrol commander's dead patrol commander's dead uh, and as i've said that he's looked at me with these massive dinner plate eyes and i've shown him a grenade um and he's kind of shaking his head rapidly saying yeah get it in get it in so i was a bit concerned uh if i threw it it might come back and frag him and jace because the wood line was so thick uh but threw it anyway um and it landed in front of the guy um and you know only a few meters in front of the patrol commander uh and has gone off um, and the patrol commander's popped his head up and he's shot the guy, um, which has cleaned me up to uh, uh, be able to go in there and help him drag Jace out. So I've gone in and we've both dragged Jace behind the cover that uh, I was in, I've just left, um, and we're still getting sporadic fire from the two positions to the rear, um, and I've you know, kind of changed my efforts to work on Jace. So he's got a uh, tension pneumothorax, which I've decompressed with two needles to his chest. He's got an arterial bleed in his right leg. Both of his knees have been shot through. Uh, he's been shot through both uh, arms uh, and he's completely unconscious. Uh, so <clears throat> we've dealt with what we could uh, initially, which was the important part was the JVD, the, uh, sorry, the um, um, tension pneumothorax. So I've decompressed his chest uh, and tourniquet to stop any further bleeding and straight away gone into um, CPR and EAR. At that stage, Adam, the JTAC, was uh, on the net to the Apaches that were inbound. Uh, and he's, the Apaches, again, American Apaches, absolutely fantastic. They they pretty much just hovered over us like a fucking metal angel um, and just started at the back of the wood uh, and just chain gunned it with 30 mil. Um, and they started at the back of the wood and they just worked forward by 20 meters every time until they were, you know, danger close. Uh, they just decimated the wood line. Um <clears throat> So we've called in for a, a, a PJ team, again, American. So thank you very much for your service uh, to come and get Jace. Uh, and we needed to get into the HLZ, so still working on him. Uh, me and another guy I won't mention, I'll just call him T, uh, another medic from another patrol. Um, awesome guy came in and, you know, kind of relieved a lot of pressure off of me. Um, we got Jace onto a stretcher and got into the HLZ, which was, you know, your typical infantry. Let's go and carry some stretchers. It was fucking heavy. It was uphill, uh, you know, and you were covered. You were, you're full of kit. So it was uh, every, every training evolution you do with uh, carrying casualties and training is actually, uh, you know, relevant. Um, so we got him to the HLZ uh, and uh, did a, a missed handover with the power rescue jumpers uh, and Jace was taken out. Unfortunately, there was a dust, dust cloud coming in uh, and the helos that came to pick us up nearly had a crash on landing. Uh, so we called it off or they called it off and uh, we ended up staying um, out overnight uh, just outside the village in, in, the, in the desert, um, you know, just at small arms range and just stayed there waiting for the dust cloud to clear to get, clear to get picked up. Uh, in the meantime, we dropped a bomb uh, a JDAM onto the wood line uh, and sent some guys down to do a BDA and, uh, you know, battle damage assessment. And they're all fucking dead, uh, which is a bonus. Um, but uh, in, in the background, while this is happening, uh, we had another team coming from a different direction and they, 
they uh, scared off another guy who was waiting in the middle of a cornfield with 600 uh, rounds of link and a PKM. Um, so it was it was well set up, and they they planned to hit us from many angles, and they weren't your your ten dollar talibs. These guys were were keen, and they wanted to you know kill kill the infidel. Um, so yeah, we sent like I say a BDA down, and they uh, they made sure the guys were killed. Um, and you know late, late, later that night, about eleven o'clock, um, we got a radio message saying that Jason had passed. We knew, um, but uh, yeah, it was confirmation. Um, but uh, I suppose the reason I mentioned all that sort of stuff, I think had we had a dog uh, trying to push across that riverbed, um, moving around the wood blocks, the dog maybe would have picked up on human scent. Uh, I know we talk about the dogs can smell fear. I don't know how true that is. It's probably not. But there's some, uh, you know, adrenaline maybe they can smell uh, humans when that adrenaline's uh, slightly different. Um, so there's potential there that he would have smelt them because they, they were only, you know, fucking meters back from that wood line so it may have been different you know the dog may have been killed instead of jason i don't know but that that was uh, essentially what pushed me to go and do the course yeah long-winded answer but uh <laughs> pretty relevant i think yeah no no I, I appreciate the answer um so and the canine course is that a, a long course or, or what's that like um it was about eight weeks and you learn everything from basic husbandry uh to um you know uh how to brush a dog i suppose in basic husbandry cleaning the kennels um you learn about uh you know how they how they smell how they find odor um biting and you know all that sort of stuff tracking uh and you do the do the course with your dog you get you get a dog uh, a fresh dog um, which pretty much just knows how to bite and obey commands. And then you you work with that dog. Um, there's a lot of off-leash off control involved, um, e-collars. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's full on. Um, and even though you finish your course at around, I think it's longer now, I think it's more like uh, three months. But uh, I think, uh, or, I know, or I know, even whilst you're still learning, you're still training, um, and, and the dog is still, uh, you're still putting your dog through its paces. And yourself. Uh, so you spent a, a, a decent bit of time training with uh, other nations, militaries um, uh, on the special ops side. Have you only worked with Americans or have you worked with Americans and other? No, no. So, <clears throat> yeah, I've worked with uh, guys from the UK, uh, JTF2, uh, Kiwis. Again, because Kiwis are part of the uh, Commonwealth, New, Z- uh, New Zealand SAS, we've had a few guys transfer across here. And they're some of the, the toughest, uh, best soldiers I've ever worked with. One um, sixtieth uh, over uh, in Guam. Uh, work with the U.S. SEALs uh, and uh, the Green Berets over there. Um, so, yeah, I've been lucky enough to uh, work with most of the Five Eyes Special Forces um, and, you know, the Tier 1 units as well. So, But obviously being regional down here, um, we work with, uh, you know, Indonesian, uh, Malaysian, uh, you know, all these different uh, Thai, Thai Special Forces or whatever um, because this is our region, right? So we need to be, uh, you know, in bed with them guys and on the same net just in case we need to work with them. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and some of those uh, those Asian countries, those guys are pretty squared away, right? Yeah, so the best I've worked with, if I'm honest, was Cambodia, uh, Cambodian. Uh, they were really good. I did a few trips over there in 2014, teaching them uh, low signature operations, uh, and I taught the live fire aspect. Um, 
life life from the cars um and you know from the civilian dress standard uh, no uniform no helmet body armors whatever uh, at the time you had an oda team over there teaching them uh you know more uniform stuff and we had the the visit by oh, i can't remember his name but he looked like obama he was uh, the the paycom uh, chief back in the day so this is 2014 mm. uh, he came out to the uh, range and uh, had a look at you know what we were doing what the americans were doing real good guy um, one of his uh, aides was like, uh, I, I wouldn't like to be signing off on this risk assessment. And I, I kind of looked at him. I was like, what risk assessment? <laughs> we didn't do one. No, we did. But uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty loose. But uh, they, they were squared away, the Cambodians. Um, and, you know, with old AKs and old Chinese knockoff M4s, they, they, they could, you know, be really accurate and uh, uh, quick uh, in their shooting drills. Okay, so um, how many deployments did you do in total, like to Afghanistan and the uh, Special Forces? Uh, four. Um, so, so the first one was was the ambush. Uh, on the next one, I went back. So I came back from 2010, did the dog course, uh, and then went on to recovery, what we call recovery or team, which is uh, standby to go away and do hostage rescue and whatnot, and CT in, in Australia. And then I, I, I deployed uh, back to Afghanistan in 2011 as the junior dog handler. Um, so we lost a few dogs uh, on that trip. So um, we had Cujo was shot on the two-way range uh, through the uh, leg. So he came home and after a little while um, had had his leg amputated and went to retire back at his uh, original handler's house. And we had Cougar, who was, uh, uh, they deployed, I wasn't on this job because I was uh, on a, um, uh, an ATV job up in the mountains, but uh, Cougar um, was pushing forward, uh, moving towards a compound of interest uh, getting after getting off the helos and smelt uh, a Talib uh, in ambush um, and swam across a river, started to bite this guy, uh, haven't been shot already. Um, the guy in, appended his AK on, uh, on, on Cougar um, and shot him again. So Cougar had about four holes in at this stage, one through the face, one through the leg, uh, one through the chest, uh, and I think one through the ear maybe. Um, so the guy ran off and was cleaned up by the Apaches, uh, and uh, Cougar's handler... Um, got him to come back and they Kazivaked him. So he was Kazivaked uh, like Cujo out of Germany um, through the American system. And, and, you know, they, and again, thanks again, uh, us for uh, looking after our dogs, but they did a fantastic job uh, uh, getting him back to health as much as they could. Uh, they both lived. Um, unfortunately, uh, Cougar would later succumb to his wounds um, and the stress placed on him because of that. Uh, and yeah, he would die. Um, he went on to get the Dickin Medal, which is, I suppose, the equivalent of uh, the um, Victoria Cross for humans or Medal of uh, Medal of Honor. Oh wow! Um, and yeah, you can, you can Google that. So uh, Cougar uh, Dickin Medal has a great story. Uh, I don't do it justice there, but um, yeah, awesome dog and probably one of the best I work with. Um, yeah, so because they were injured, I had to stand up as uh, kind of the lead dog handler. Um, I was a junior guy with the dog. Um, but had the kind of the best dog to push into that position at the time. And we were uh, surging uh, more dogs forward. But yeah, because I was now the lead guy with the dog, I was probably on every job um, pushed to the front um, when you know the two-way ranges started so we could use dogs where we could. Um, so it was a yeah, really good experience. Okay. Um, yeah. So that was 2011. 
Okay. Yeah, I, I then returned in 2013 on the third trip as the senior dog handler. Um, so I uh, had three dogs and another two handlers uh, to kind of to run training for, um, and I would provide the uh, uh, tactical uh, or the best um, output for the troop using the dogs for this job for that particular job if you like um so input into the orders or whatever just where the dog was but at this stage to be honest the patrol commanders a few of them were ex-dog handlers anyway or the team leaders should i say and um they they knew because they'd been doing it for so long so they knew where to put the dog so yeah i was just you know the lead dog handed kind of have an input into who would go out but um yeah we had three dogs on that rotation um and again it was it was busy for the dog handlers less operators were going out on the ground because um of the partner force ratio so the dog handler was always going out because it was just a, a, a force multiplier uh, in regards to finding ids doing point of entry searches the non-lethal interdiction um just that uh, pre-warning of someone in ambush with his nose um or ieds uh, in front of us um so they, they always went out so were you guys doing um I know guys, uh, stateside units were doing like VSO type of stuff, village stability operations. Were you guys doing that or no? Um, we, special air service weren't, the Australian defense guys were, yeah. So they would, um, like the infantry guys, they okay. would partner with Afghans. They'd be out in a fob in a, in a village or in, in a valley and they would do that sort of stuff, yeah. Um, but SASR weren't. Uh, and again, I worked with a few uh, Navy SEALs uh, in Aruzgan, 2013, um, when they were based at one of these fobs, we went and did a hit um, with these guys, uh, and they they knew who he was, and they knew where, where he lived, and what he looked like. So yeah, a few guys came out with us, and yeah, we we ended up getting this guy. Um, yeah. So you guys were mainly uh, in the role of like a, a strike so, uh, force, basically, like assault force. Yep. So there's there's no uh, task verb in the Australian doctrine of kill capture. Uh, however, it was 100% something we did, even though the senior officers try and uh, back swerve, get, you know, kind of get out of that and say that, you know, we didn't do it. We 100% did. Uh, and they know because uh, the quad slides, the, the concept of operations were pushed up and it said kill capture. So someone somewhere is uh, telling a few porkies. But um, yeah, we were going out and striking. Uh, I know, uh, I think the Americans called it uh, kill capture. I think the Brits called it. Um, Detention operations, I might be slightly wrong on that, um, regardless. Um, DDOs, deliberate detention operations. Um, so the task verbs are relevant. It was go out there and you know neutralize this threat, whether it be um, capture or kill. Uh, clearly, capture was um, would have been uh, the or is the ideal um way to go about it because you can use them guys for intelligence but they clearly have a say in that and if they if they want to fight then um it's not going to end well for them so yeah that's essentially what we we did uh for the last probably um three four years of our time in afghanistan uh, was was kill capture missions was strike okay all right so in in uh in recent years um I don't know exactly how long, maybe it's like three or four years. Uh, there's been a, a controversy uh, surrounding uh, the uh, special forces in Australia uh, related to, uh, you know, alleged war crimes in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, 
uh, you know, I've seen some stuff about it, not a bunch. I, I've watched like a, a few uh, clips about it and seen some people yeah. online discussing it. Um, can you talk about it um, in, in whatever capacity that you can? Yeah, mate, of course I can. Uh, clearly, I can't say too much because, you know, there's still court gates, uh, sorry, court dates um, being waited for. In fact, no one's even been to court yet. Uh, not only that, there's going to be heaps of journalists and federal police listening to this uh, podcast um, to see what they, I say that they can use. Um, so I have to watch what I say uh, so I don't, uh, you know, say something different to someone else and they get in trouble for it or whatever. Not that, you know, I'm going to do any, say anything untoward. It's just uh, they, they're waiting for court court dates. Um, mm-hmm. Currently, the only person uh, that's been to court uh, is Ben Robert Smith, uh, and he's actually requested that court date. So he's suing uh, a number of uh, media outlets in Australia uh, for defamation. Um, so that court's, uh, court case has already been done. They're just waiting for Judge Pasanko's ruling on that. So he's got six to nine months to make a ruling. Um, so uh, we'll wait and see on that one. Um, so the seven-year investigation, uh, so far anyway, is off the report uh, written by a sociologist uh, called Samantha Crompets. Um The report itself is written like um, a five-year-old kid who hates a dad, um, <laughs> and it's based full of rumors, mate. <clears throat> so there's a number of things in that report that, uh, you know, it's just complete bullshit uh, that someone who had an agenda against SOCOM uh, decided to to say, for instance, uh, the SES troop who slit, slit two children's throats and threw them in a river didn't fucking happen. Uh, and you can ask anyone in any infantry platoon, special forces troop, uh, if they see if they saw two people slit the throats of two children and discard them like a piece of rubbish, um, the rest of the troop platoon unit whatever would have something to say about it. You don't. You, there's no secret like that. You can keep. Um, and personally, had I saw that, I would have fucking shot on myself because you don't do that to kids or anyone for that matter. So it's bullshit. Um, so, you know, you've got to ask the the validity of the remainder of that report um, and who spoke out. Because I know for a fact, if anyone spoke to her from the special forces uh, operator side or assault side, um, it was disaffected uh, individuals with an agenda. And there was probably only two of them. Um so that was seven years ago that started this investigation. So we had a uh, interdepartment uh, IG intergovernment department of oh, no, I can't tell what it stands for intergovernmental uh, Australian Defence Force investigation into war crimes. So that started uh, after that uh, report, um, and like I say, that's been ongoing for seven years. It's still ongoing. Uh, for the last two, we've had a federal investigation. So the uh, AFP, which would like to think they're the equivalent of the FBI, are now doing investigations. Um, the, the lead guy uh, has already, you know, been doing talking tours about it, and he's been talking how difficult it's going to be prosecute people because they've got to look at the the, the international criminal court, domestic law, international court, uh, court and laws, uh, the Rome Statute, the Geneva Convention. Um, there's so many different uh, laws that need to navigate, uh, and it's all based off he said, she said. Um, so it's going to be uh, hard to, to take anyone to court, let alone get a conviction if anything's gone wrong. Uh, don't get me wrong. If, if something has gone wrong uh, and someone has done something wrong, they need to be uh, you know, tried in a court of law. But it needs to be a fair and judicial process. Uh, what we've seen in Australia is just um, you know, the report that was released two years ago. 
members that were still serving, and there, there was approximately uh, 13 of them, we call them the dirty 13, um, were sacked. Um, they've had their whole fucking lives uh, just denigrated in the media. Um, and, you know, because of that one story of two children's throat being slit, I know fathers whose daughters don't have the same relationship. Uh, I know families that have been split. Uh, I would go as far as saying uh, a soldier killed himself uh, as a a special forces soldier killed himself as a direct um, result of the sociologist report. Um, so it's it's crap, mate. Um, there's been listening devices found in operators' cars, both serving and uh, ex-serving. Um, operators have been picked up from their kids' schools, having their uh, phones taken off them, and they've been taken back to their homes where they've had their homes fucking essentially x-rayed. Um, it's like the X-Files. I don't know what they're looking for, aliens in the wars or something. Um, but, uh, you know, whilst this is ongoing, it's just been a complete bias uh, media with defence uh, or military tacit approval from the generals. Uh, and no one's done anything to counter any of the bullshit stories. There was one uh, of... Um, SAS soldiers with the Confederate flag. Uh, and, you know, the, the news article was uh, racist SAS. And then, then you've got uh, colonels from the US saying, you know, the morals have shifted too far. Uh, you've got uh, psychologists saying, yeah, they've, you know, spent too long there. And, and uh, you know, the, the <laughs> it's just clickbait shit. What actually happened was they found this, uh, this, this quilt on target and it was a Confederate flag, uh, but it, but it was from the U.S. in a care packet. They thought it was funny, and they took a they took a photo. Um, they actually gave the quilt to a an American pilot who fucking thought it was great and took it home. This, you know, there's a story behind it, and I, right. I get there's uh, there's um, a little there is controversy around the flag, um, and I, I understand its origins. Um, but this was in no way uh, in anything to do with race. Um, it was funny because they found it on target and it's black humor, dark humor, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was just turned into something it was not. Um, and that's what it's been like from day dot um, with these investigative journalists uh, just just saying one side of, of a biased, untrue, uh, you know, it's just wrong. There, there's not been the flip side of the coin, um, i.e. the truth uh, has not been told. Um, so these guys are still waiting. Like I say, they've been sacked, seven-year investigation, um, and they're still waiting to go to court. Um, we think, uh, and media has reported, um, that they're potentially only looking at three people now. So there was uh, 25 people initially caught up in it, um, and now they're potentially only looking at three. Um, and some may end up in court sometime this year. But again, that's not confirmed. That's just uh, coming out of the media. So again, you can't really trust it. Um, so we've had a squadron disbanded. Uh, Defence forces try to remove a meritorious unit citation. Uh, they're trying to remove uh, operational commanders' distinguished service medals uh, that were actually in combat. Um, and the guy doing it is the current chief of defence, uh, Angus Campbell, who was uh, the um, commander joint task force during the time these alleged uh, war crimes were supposed to have happened. Uh, and he got a distinguished service cross for it. However, he refuses to give up his, but as requesting combat leaders hand theirs back. Um, it's just, you know, leadership starts at the top. Um, and if you're going to do something like that, you start by handing yours back. You don't start by defending yours, exonerating yourself, and then asking your subordinate commanders to hand their distinguished uh, combat medals back, especially when they were actually in combat and in the same country. 
This guy wasn't. He was in the middle. Uh, he was in Dubai. Um, so it just stinks. It's just, um, yeah, isn't it's not cool. And the guys are fed up of it, and uh, they want their day in court um, to, you know, exonerate themselves, exonerate the right word or clear themselves, um, whatever whatever the word is. But uh, uh, and they look forward to it, and the families look forward to it, so they can kind of move past it and you know rebuild whatever life they've got left from this because it's it's destroyed people's mental health, destroys families, um, and you know it's just been very very one sided bias bullshit account yeah we actually um we actually have uh, several cases uh that have popped up in the last 20 something years uh here in the states where it was like really um uh ridiculous sort of antics by uh the the prosecution side of of the uh yeah whatever service it is and, and similar to how you mentioned that you know, there's listening devices being placed here. Or yeah. In situations, uh, emails were getting hacked and like all this crazy shit. Um, and and it, it's it's unfortunate uh, because uh, the, the things that the military justice system is able to get away with wouldn't stand in a civilian court. Um, well, and, that, and that's the thing. Like this this uh, IGDF report that was handed down two years ago, uh, General Brereton. Uh, he even puts in the report, this uh, report is based on supposition and is not an indication of a crime. Um, so essentially saying it's, this, this is supposed, this is, we suppose this happened. So there's no evidence in that that can actually be used or very, very little that can actually be used in a court of law. Um, but when they, you know, the chief of defense force, the prime minister and the minister for defense uh, did the um, press release, um, they didn't mention that. I don't even think the prime minister actually read the report uh, or the defense minister because um, had they done or had their lawyers read the report properly, maybe they wouldn't have said some of the things uh, that they did um, because I think it's going to come back to bite them on the ass um, after this. Um, We'll see. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, uh, There was just a case uh, here uh, stateside uh, and the, the, the guys ended up uh, not facing charges. Uh, the, there were three Marine Raiders, so, so Mar- they were part yep. of the Marsac community. Yep. Um, and the, the case and everything has been uh, called like the, the situation of the Marsac Three. And, um, and and what's real, what's crazy about this particular situation is uh, the entire thing was captured on video, and it was clearly self defense and. They tried to disengage from the uh, the guy who attacked them, and he ended up dying um, after one of the guys uh, in self defense punched him back. Yeah. Um, and and, yeah, okay, well. and the entire thing is on video, and even so, with the there being an actual video of the thing from start to finish, uh, several witnesses uh, who weren't allowed to uh, be called in. Uh, That's wrong. Yeah, and it, even despite all of that, it's still it was four years of of these guys being. Uh, I think they were knocked down a rank. Um, they were docked yeah. pay. They were humiliated, uh, you know, at the command. Um, uh, all to then uh, once they, they have their day in court, to to all the charges are dropped. And and w- what's still kind of crazy about it is the the one charge 
that did stick was like drinking. Um, like they, they weren't supposed to be drinking. Yeah. But if show me a soldier, special special forces, one that doesn't drink. I was demoted on ops. Uh, sorry, demoted for drinking on ops. But uh, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, so that that charge sticks. But because of the scenario, or, or the, I don't understand it exactly. But if it does stick, it'll be a felony. So it's like, yeah, right. It's just Go to jail for drinking. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fucking crazy. Um, but yeah, you know, for uh, me. No, I was gonna say I I hope the guys over there uh, you know get their day in court and uh, if if they're not guilty then they should be exonerated and uh, you know yeah <laughs> unfortunately the damage is done like to, to people's mental health to families you know to the the unit um, brand itself to people's uh, reputation right um, and everyone's been silent for seven years um, and defense is not once the military over here has not once come out in support or countered rubbish stories. Uh, it's just been a absolute slaying fest. Um, and they've maintained dignified silence, apart from myself, probably, uh, and one or two others who uh, have released to the media. Um, or, you know, th- there was a letter a little while ago released to the media um, from a couple of ex- or a couple of uh, serving special forces guys. Um, but it's just it's just time. It's, <clears throat> it's shit or get off the pot. Um it's not fair on these families. Um, a war that finished for us 10 years ago uh, is being replayed every day. Uh, we know the feds are using Pegasus to monitor their comms. I'm probably being monitored. Um, not that I've got anything to worry about. Um, we know that they're using these listening devices uh, and it's time to go to court and let these people either pay for their crime or get on with their life. Uh, and I've been, I've been looking at uh, the stuff in the US. I've just read that code of con- conduct, sorry, code before country um and again it was very uh informative and i'd love to hear the stories about uh the the, the seals getting amongst it but then they put their slant on it on the on the you know this must have happened this must have must have that's conjecture yeah. um so it kind of it just left bullshit supposition um so yeah it's the same over here and we've had books written um and a lot of the stuff in the books is untrue uh and you know Australia, America, they're not the only countries to go through this. Um, you know, the Brits, uh, they have 1,400 uh, alleged um, crimes or whatever they, they called it, uh, lined up against them from Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and it was found to be doing uh, ambulance chasing. Uh, so they were sending, it's exactly the same as what Australia's done, funny enough, sending people over to uh, Iraq and Afghanistan um, to uh, go find uh, crimes. Uh, and when the British government got hold of it, they're like, okay, this is too far. This is too much. We're quashing it all. Um, so they've quashed it all. I think they're looking at special forces uh, or a case involving special forces at the moment in the UK. Um, and we'll see how that goes. But I think most countries that, and the Kiwis had a similar uh, thing, the New Zealand special forces. Uh, so I think most con- most countries and most tier one units and uh, have had similar things. But I think George W. Bush said it, correct before we went into afghanistan uh, after 9-11 he said you know this is going to be a war like no other and he was 100 percent right uh, and governments and armies and military leaders took the risk um but they didn't take the risk they just transferred it to the enlisted soldier and now the enlisted soldiers is paying for it whether leadership are not they're uh, you know they're hiding um they talk about fog of fog of war um i'd like to hear them talk about fog of strategy because 
the only strategy for the Australian defence was uh, pretty much to follow America blindly. Um, and I don't say that's a bad thing. Um, you need friends, but, uh, you know, you need um, you need your own uh, key metrics of success. Uh, and with the mission creep, uh, they, they, they crept as well. And to the end where the Australian government just wanted a reason to uh, pull Australian defence out of Afghanistan. Um, and as we saw, the first sniff of a withdrawal, Australia jumped on the bandwagon and pulled the troops out. And the job was nowhere near done. Uh, the partner forces would, were crap uh, that we work with anyway. Um, and they had gotten used to American, British, Australian, you know, Canadian um, special forces uh, techniques, tactics, procedures, equipment, drones, helicopters, uh, and they weren't set up uh, as they should have been uh, or could have been to do the stuff on them by themselves. Um, so, yeah, leaving them without that um, is probably, uh, you know, a big fail on on uh, ISAF's part. Um, something, yeah, all of us uh, can feel a little bit ashamed for, if I'm honest. I, I know I do. Um leaving that country back with the Taliban and ISIS-K and Al-Qaeda, and they're all back in there. And it's just going to be a you know, melting pot for terrorists now. And the Afghan people are going to, going to feel it. So, yeah, not cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And uh, I think, you know, most guys who serve there feel the same or uh, yeah. it, it may even affect them in a, a negative way seeing that, you know. Um, yeah, it definitely does, mate. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Uh, uh, you know, towards the uh, sort of end of your career, um, you had worked with the uh, Kurdish um, up in uh, northern Iraq. Can you talk about that at all? Uh, so I, I deployed actually 2018 um, to the Middle East again, and I was kind of around the Middle East and Southeast Asia doing in, uh, information gathering, let's just say, information gathering. Um, and that was for six months. <clears throat> uh and again, like you say, I deployed, <clears throat> excuse me, I deployed again in 2021 to uh, Kurdistan. Um, I can't really talk about the role just because of the nature uh, of the work, um, but it was working alongside the US and UK special forces. Uh, I don't for a minute uh, claim that we were doing anything as cool as them guys, um, but it was still, you know, alongside. Um, it was more insurgent focused than it was anything else. Um, but I was a task uh, element commander uh, in Erbil for a dislocated team of uh, about 14 people uh, that were embedded with uh, various countries, special forces and uh, other government agencies up there. Um, and I was there for about four or five months. Uh, I was cooked. I shouldn't have gone, mate, to be honest. Um, I was burnt out. Uh, the investigation um, had taken its toll by the stage and, you know, a number of deployments uh in afghanistan had kind of give me a few mental health issues uh, that i needed to work on which i kind of just pushed back which most people do because uh, they want to deploy again uh, and and it was coming to the fore uh and i shouldn't have deployed i did request not to um but it was kind of pushed under the carpet and i deployed anyway um so i, I came home in may uh, and pretty much uh, went uh, and signed off and again left defense but whilst i was over there uh, i suppose one uh, one incident i can talk to uh, was on the 13th or 15th of february i think it was um and Erbil was hit with uh, 13 
uh, missiles from uh, a Shia militia group, uh, and they probably landed about 400 meters, you know, 600 meters away from the camp. Um, as in my particular camp, so we built our own while we, whilst we were there. Uh, we were living with the US uh, SOF uh, up until that point, um, and we went out. You know, there was a call uh, for blood donors so we me and a couple of the guys uh, jumped into um you know the truck and drove over to the uh to the roll two i think it was uh to to go and give blood and there was guys you know getting taken off trucks on stretches with fucking uh you know guts hanging out and there was just claret everywhere just you know uh, where they took these guys and they just been bleeding out all over the floor um so we went over there to give a hand and then uh, whilst we were there, we got a call from uh, the task force uh, HQ and said, hey, look, you know, we've got a couple of dis- dislocated uh, members in and around Urbil. Can you can you help go and pick them up? So myself uh, and my offsider, um, the, my two IC, uh, jumped in a soft skin um, with our guns and uh, pretty much drove around Urbil picking up uh, dislocated Americans, both from uh, the military and OGAs. And I think there's a journal chucked in there somewhere. Um, and... Yeah, the, the task force uh, put us up for a army accommodation, which was pretty cool. Um, so that was uh, yeah in in February. Um, so oh, there's not really much I can say about that trip. Um, most of it was uh, to the west, uh, and yeah, is it wasn't uh, the best trip, um, but it was it was certainly interesting, and I learned so much um, what was going on in the region. Uh, and and it's it's fucking is a lot, so yeah, that's that's all I'll say to that. But uh, I I came home in uh, in May, um, and obviously due to COVID, I had to sit in a in a room for two weeks um, prior to coming home, and then come home and uh, yeah, I, I discharged. I, I went through the process of discharging, uh, and I actually left um, August last year. That was my uh, my last date, seventeenth of August. Okay, and uh, and then you got out, and you're completely done with the military. I'm completely done with the military, mate. Um, in more ways than one, to be honest. I, I love the job, um, and I loved being in the unit. Um, but the uh, the leadership, um, in my opinion, has been remiss. Uh, in fact, has been missing in action um, from SOCOM and from ADF for a number of years. And uh, it's just had a uh, yeah. It's just uh, it was just my time to go. I don't want to sound negative. I'll finish on negative uh, points, mate. Um, it was my time to leave. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll finish on that particular chapter with the fact that um, the guys that are there now, the newer guys are as good and in some cases better than, you know, generations before them and as they should be. Um, and I wish them, you know, the best, best of luck. And I hope um, the, the me as the, sorry, the bias media um, and treatment of them, uh, you know, improves because they deserve it. They're, they're some of the best uh, soldiers Australia's got. And uh, they've gone through 18 months of selection process to get where they are uh, and they deserve to be the tip of the spear and you know be trusted to, to do that hmm. okay so um and so far like how has uh, getting out been for you um no different if i'm honest mate because now i'm out uh i've got a voice um, whereas before I tried to have a voice and was punished for it. So whilst I was in defense, I called out, I, I, I called out the people that were uh, illegally uh, breaking ADF um, rules and regulations and speaking to the media. Um, and, you know, these guys aren't, 
whistleblowers, their media sources. Um, they had a number of avenues to go down to report any crimes that they witnessed. Uh, number one and number whatever, you know, from A to Z, if you're going to report it, you start with the military police. And if no one else listens to you, you finish with the military police. Uh, that avenue wasn't taken. Um, so they're, they're media sources. So I got in trouble for calling these guys out. Um whilst I was serving. Um, now I'm out. Uh, Defence can't do a great deal to me. So, uh, you know, I, I can try and be a voice for the guys, the nameless 19, as, as I've uh, termed them. Um, you know, try and be a voice for them. Not that I'm advocating war crimes. I'm not. Uh, I'm advocating due process. And none of these guys have got it. They've been sat at home waiting for a court case under surveillance and investigation by the federal police uh, and getting denigrated in the media. And they've not won into court and it's wrong um after serving their country for decades um so that's that's my focus at the moment is just trying to support these guys um and again i'm, I'm putting my neck on the chopping block if you like as uh, the media over here if you don't uh, follow their narrative um then they'll start a campaign against you which i re recently found an article um in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald stating that I support war criminals or something along them lines, which was, oh, sorry, no, that's, that's incorrect. Um, it was that I was running a campaign against their witnesses, which is 100% incorrect. Um, and if anyone chooses to go on my uh, uh, Instagram page, you'll see my Instagram page is designed to support former and current SESR members and those awaiting war crimes, uh, investigations and a day in court. Um, so it's about judicial process. Um, so that's the, you know, incorrect media reporting. Uh, so that's something we've got to deal with over here is them coming after you. Yeah. And it, it's unfortunate because it, it feels like once they kind of decide, uh, you know, that you're guilty or, or, uh, that you're someone who's dangerous to them and in their narrative, they kind of just go after you. But. They just want to discredit you, mate. That's, yeah. that's, that's what I'm expecting. Um, and I've got, I've got no secrets. Everyone who knows me, um, you know, my wife knows all of my secrets. Um, so I'm, I'm comfortable. And if they want to come after me, then that's fine. I'm willing to put my neck on that chopping block um, to support, uh, you know, my friends and they are my friends um, and some of them extremely good friends uh, and, um excellent soldiers and it's yeah it needs it needs to be uh these guys need the day in court but uh it, you know in in supporting them i'm able to be able other than try and help these guys and I'm, I'm able to do uh you know to support charities as well and guys that are doing it tough in the military currently so um i've been selling just bumper stickers i support the nameless 19 with the big uh, cat badge on it um and donating all, all profits to uh charity so I managed to raise thirteen thousand dollars or thereabouts for two charities at christmas one being the smith family foundation um for disadvantaged kids at christmas um the other one was young veterans uh, i managed to raise approximately ten thousand dollars for uh, one of the guys uh, who's a current team leader at SESR going through cancer treatment um, and 4,000 for another SES uh, sergeant uh, who's now uh, in, out of defense, uh, who's also got cancer. Um, and I'm, I'm saving for my next, uh, my next uh, cause, if you like, but it is all uh, aimed at one supporting the guys and then using that um, money I raise in that support by selling these stickers to help charities worth you know worthy charities and it's all in the name of veterans um, so you know I'm just the middle one 
And uh, if anyone listening wants to sort of help out or contribute to, to any of that stuff, um, where can they do that? Like your social media or? Yeah, so go on to social media and, you know, thanks in advance. I really appreciate that shout out. But go on to social media. So uh, I'm at Dirty Bearded Pilgrims, uh, all one word. Um, and there's a link in my uh, bio uh, to a GoFundMe page. Um, alternatively, you can get a dress. I've set up a, a bank account. Uh, for that um and i can send you the, the the details for that but from america it's probably easier with gofundme um yeah thanks appreciate that awesome yeah um yeah i've been watching some of the stuff you you're doing in terms of helping people out and stuff and it's it's good good things and um you know i'm, I'm happy to you know encourage people to support you if they can um i think that's the only uh no, I, I, and I'll, I'll say it, you know, I, I, um, I was diagnosed with PTSD and uh, the doctors uh, put me on fucking heaps of different drugs and it just it just uh, zones you out. And I think they just want you so you're not dangerous to yourself or others. Um, I spent probably a year on that shit uh, and realized that it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. Uh, and so I came off that. Uh, and the only thing really that's helped with my mental state is helping other people and the community online um it's it, it's created a community um um and you know the people on there are fantastic uh there's a few weirdos you get i'll, I'll get sent some yeah. random pictures which is good I, I i get a laugh out of it it's great keep doing it um <laughs> but you know veterans helping each other um is where it's at uh, and that's for me is probably the biggest thing for mental health uh, is yeah don't isolate yourself whether it be online or meeting up in person or whatever it is, um, you know, veterans helping each other is is uh, is is the way forward. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely, and uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you. Uh, appreciate you doing this. I know the the time zone difference is a little funky, but um, I'm glad we were able to do this. Uh, I had a great time, and I think uh, my audience is really going to oh, appreciate. Thanks for having me on, mate. Uh, yeah, they're going to appreciate. Uh, you know, hearing your story and, and getting your perspective on, on uh, some of these things that are important to you. And, and that's, you know, the whole reason uh, I'm on social media. That's the whole reason I'm selling these bumper stickers. That's the whole reason I'm doing podcasts is to not share my story necessarily, um, but share the story of what's been going on to raise awareness of the fact that these guys had seven years in purgatory uh, and they're still waiting and it's ruining people's lives. Um, and yeah, it, need, it needs to you know, get dealt with shit or get off the pot. Um, so had I, had this not happened, you wouldn't have seen me on social media. I wouldn't have been doing podcasts. Um, yeah, but someone has to talk out and no leadership has. So um, once again, bottom up driven from the ranks. Uh, someone's got to do something, right? <laughs>